Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm joined this week by Helen Thompson, Glenn Ranwala and Chris Brooke. We're recording as we always do on Wednesday morning. So we're about 36 hours, actually less than 36 hours after the terrorist attack in Manchester. People will be hearing this another 24 hours after now. The election campaign is still suspended. I don't think we know if it's going to resume tomorrow, possibly on Friday. It'll have to resume soon. But overnight, the state of terrorist alert went up another level. We're not in the business of trying to talk in detail about individual terrorist attacks. That's not what we do. I don't think we're in the business of speculating about what it means for the election. I think that would be inappropriate, but also just futile. No doubt when this election is over, people will look back on the campaign and they will see that there was a break point and then maybe there will be quite a lot of speculation about did it impact on how people voted. I suspect that will still be a mistake. I think it's very hard to know. But the campaign will resume soon and we were planning this week to talk about in broad terms how it had gone for the two main parties and the emerging dynamics of it and I think we should still talk about that. Obviously it's framed by the current situation and we can touch on that too if it seems relevant. So to go back to what the campaign looked like at the start of this week, Mrs May wasn't in trouble, but she was having a big wobble. That's the word that's often used. She just revised her manifesto commitment on social care. The polls, insofar as we trust the polls, were moving somewhat. The gap was narrowing. It usually does in an election campaign. It's still a wide gap. It's still a 10-point gap, I think. The, the one startling poll I saw, the last one I saw before I think polling has been suspended too, was from Wales, where there'd been a massive swing from the Tories to Labour. Labour had gone from being five or six points behind to being seven or eight points ahead, which in itself is quite something. But the thing that stands out for me about the campaign so far, given that, and we've discussed this many times, there is this overarching view that two-party politics is on the way out and multiple parties are occupying the space and squeezing the two-party vote. But the most recent polls have the two parties back up at 80-plus percent of the total vote. If anyone's being squeezed, it's not just UKIP, it's the Liberal Democrats too, apart from in Wales. Insofar as there is movement, it actually seems to be movement away from the Liberal Democrats to Labour, not straightforward swaps from Conservatives to Labour. And Related to that is my feeling, and you might disagree with this, that the really striking thing about this election is it's not a Brexit election. I mean, it's Brexit that's almost been squeezed out of the competition between the parties and the Lib Dems may have suffered as a result. It's an extraordinarily domestic leadership and or policy election, hence the the whole kerfuffle around social care. What, What happened to Brexit? What happened to this being the Brexit election? Well, I think one of the things that happened is that Brexit set the terms on which the election could take place for the political parties. And one of the three principal political parties, at least those who compete across the whole of the United Kingdom, so the Liberal Democrats, decided to take a stance which essentially, whatever gloss they wanted to put on it, was to oppose the outcome of the referendum and say they wanted Brexit not to happen. It was dressed up as something about a second referendum, but... Once you start thinking about what the consequences of that would be in terms of the prospects of negotiating a deal, then essentially the Liberal Democrats took an anti-Brexit position. 
So essentially, they left the contest for those people who voted leave and those people who voted remain but think that the referendum outcome should be respected to two political parties, at least if you leave Scotland out of it, where clearly old two-party politics is not reasserted. But you can itself. see why they might have calculated that, that was worth doing and that that presumably still leaves them 25% of the electorate. I don't think it leaves them 25% of the electorate. I think it leaves them significantly at best 20% and probably a significant part of those people are tribal Labour voters who, although that they might like the idea of defecting to the Liberal Democrats over the EU, actually doing it is a whole other proposition. There still seems to be a gap though. The Liberal Democrats are currently polling at around 7% and there is talk that they might lose seats but in they this lost, election. They lost, if the Lord Ashcroft data is correct, something like 30 to 33% of the 2015 Liberal Democrat vote voted leave. So they shed a third of their voters before they started. So just to get back to where they were in 2015, they got to pick up Remain voters. So it's not like no Remain voters have been converted. One of the things I was very struck by over the last few years with the Liberal Democrats is the way that their by-election operation that used to be spectacularly good was eclipsed for a few years by UKIP. And I think what was going on there is that by-elections do attract a lot of voters who want to cast a sod the lot of them vote or want to cast a vote that will be awkward for the main parties. And in the 1980s and 90s, people who wanted to cast those votes generally voted Lib Dem. And more recently, they've stopped doing that. Now, if if you think that actually a decent chunk of the Lib Dem vote isn't these progressive-minded very pro-Remain, white-collar voters. But if you think that a lot of people do like the third party because it's the third party, well, those voters are never going to be especially receptive to a very pro-Remain campaign. I think we often misunderstand who it is who's voting Lib Dem. And it's true that in some parts of the country, I think in southwest London, they will pick up some votes from people who are angry about the referendum result, We saw that in the Richmond Park by-election, and a number of people think that Vince Cable may be on course to win his Twickenham seat back. Outside of South West London, I agree with Helen. I don't think the pond in which the Lib Dems are fishing for votes is big enough. And we're in a seat which is going to test this. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in Cambridge, but Cambridge is, I mean, a classic example of whether this strategy will work or not. I entirely agree with what Chris said. There's also the issue that I think democracies just have a tendency to move on. We've had the referendum vote. I think it has been accepted, but across the board in British politics, that we're not going back to being a member of the the European Union after this, um, at least for the foreseeable future. That's settled. We've got to move on from that. And in some ways, a party that tries to bring back the referendum vote in that sense is going to do badly in trying to trying to mobilise its support around that. I think basis. the other thing that's going on, though, is, is, is something that's internal to British politics, and that is we've had a, a referendum campaign that was about, in some sense, how Britain should be governed. It raised a lot of questions about identity. We've got some, if you like, quite raw emotional politics. The referendum created a febrile political atmosphere and in that sense I think it was actually relatively easy in a way perhaps it wasn't people didn't foresee for Labour to position itself as mopping up a lot of anti-Tory votes because if you look what's going on in England and Wales that is essentially what has been happening is that the main opposition is not splintering into the groups that it did in 2015. I mean if you go back to 2015 the Greens took four percent of the vote they're certainly not going to do that this time those votes have have gone to Labour. And in that respect, it does look much more like a conventional British election. 
So the gap is, who knows what the polls really say. But anyway, there was an absurdly large gap of sort of 22 points between the Tories and Labour at the start of the campaign, which is not really sustainable if there's a two-party choice in that you're either with the government or you're against them. And then if you're against them, you're going to think that your vote is likely to count for more in many places if it goes with Labour. And so in a sense, it was almost inevitable that the gap would close. That's what tends to happen. As you get nearer to the polling day, the choice narrows down and it focuses people's mind on that choice. But what has surprised many people is that the barrier in the way of that was meant to be Corbyn. And also we had the local elections where it didn't happen. You know, the gap was huge. But I don't know whether we have a feeling about this, whether he has outperformed expectations or whether it's, in a sense, in a general election, that doesn't matter. What we really are just talking about is a two-party choice. I'm not at all clear in my own mind whether he is doing better than people thought or if that's not really the issue. I think if you go back a, a week and you look at the, the situation then, that the biggest asset that Labour had so when they were getting to 32, 33, but not the 35 that YouGov were giving them over the weekend, was that there was no prospect of Labour winning. So those people who are inclined very strongly for emotional reasons as much as anything else, identity reasons to vote Labour, but have a real problem with voting for Corbyn, could do so safe in the knowledge that there wasn't any prospect of Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister. So in that sense, Labour's greatest strength was Labour's weakness, that it could win. I think then the issue of the Tory manifesto complicated that, but I'm not sure that Corbyn was actually having a particularly good campaign. I'm not sure he was himself. I mean, he clearly enjoys campaigning, but you could put that against the number of car crash interviews that members of the Shadow Cabinet were giving over various issues, not least on Labour's spending. But it was a relatively risk-free thing to do. What we won't know is if things had gone on as they were and fear had got into the Conservative party as it did, whether that actually wouldn't have acted as a tonic for Conservatives, because then there was real fear then that Corbyn would win. I mean, I think he's not just enjoying it, I think he's relishing it, and the people around him are relishing it, because it is their opportunity at a relatively low level, because I don't think they're going to win, but to say, I told you so, to be able to say, given the torrent of abuse and criticism and contempt that they faced, that they are better at this than it looks. I think it's probably true to say that they recognise it will be their only chance to run a campaign of this sort, at least for the foreseeable future, that this is their opportunity to, to lay down a marker for what they believe in, in a way that they won't get a chance again. And that gives them a certain incentive to try to throw it all at this campaign. I don't think it's been particularly effective. I think in that sense, it's more just a case of people who cannot stomach the Conservative government coming to rally to the Labour cause because there is no other alternative, realistically. But the Labour manifesto itself is not particularly Corbynite. So the phrase that stayed with me is Polly Toynbee, who has been one of the people heaping the torrents of abuse on Corbyn and everyone around him for about the past 18 months, described it as a cornucopia of delights. And it looks like something that was designed to appeal to a wide range of possible Labour voters in a fairly obvious way, including and then subsequent moves to bring forward the abolition of tuition fees and so on. It's just trying to get people into the polling booth. It's actually nothing like the 1983 
manifesto which was deeply ideological it doesn't look particularly ideological it just looks like a sort of leftist wish list mm. there is a very obvious attempt i think in that manifesto to sound reasonable to not say anything that will scare the horses there is nothing there that sounds overtly ideological there were very few slogans i mean compared to corbyn's speeches where he does tend to have a habit of using well-worn phrases the sort of phrase you can imagine he's been using for the last 20 years exactly i mean that's There's the point of yeah. that and so in that sense, at least, is that deliberate sort of attempt to, to make it sound calm, peaceful? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm struck by two things in the Labour Manifesto, though, above all. One of them is the very clear commitment to the retention of Trident. I think it remains an astonishing fact that Jeremy Corbyn is campaigning on a manifesto as party leader that has a commitment to Trident. Obviously, it would have been extraordinarily difficult for him, given the way the Labour Party works, given the way the commitment to nuclear deterrent is official party policy passed at conference that requires a vote of conference to reverse it. But I do find that an astonishing fact, given how much is invested in this idea of Corbyn's ideological purity and single-mindedness of vision. But the other thing I'm struck by with the uh, manifesto, which I think is a function of the early election, is that there hasn't been much policy development under Corbyn. The party's been in chaos in the leadership election last year, both Corbyn and Owen Smith very hastily put together these packages saying what they stood for if they were elected leader, and it turned out that they were calling for more or less exactly the same things. In terms of policy development, the party hasn't moved on much since the Miliband period. So it's Milibandism given an inflection to the left, and that's what floats Polly Toynbee's boat. I think that that's true, but I think the one thing we have to say is where Corbyn's leadership or the team around him's judgment has been really vindicated, and that is on Brexit itself. Because, I mean, Polly Toynbee would be an example, but there are any number of left columnists in The Guardian and in other places in the online world who've written piece after piece saying that Labour should turn itself into a Remain party and that if it did not do it, it was committing suicide. And that has not been the position that the leadership adopted. It's tried to go both ways on Brexit. It's, sometimes it sounds very contradictory. It's not clear unless you listen to some very nuanced points that Keir Starmer makes about the customs union, exactly what the difference is between the Labour position and the Conservative position. But the fact that they position the party such that Remain voters and Leave voters and Remain voters who wanted to respect the decision could all vote for the party has been vindicated, not only by the fact that Labour is got the possibility at least of doing at least as well, I'm not saying it will, but the possibility of it doing at least as well as it did last time and what has happened to the Liberal Democrats. Do we have any sense of who's responsible for that? I mean, is it because, as people have suspected, that Corbyn actually is in favour of Brexit or was it, do you think, strategic? I mean, they haven't shown a lot of evidence of strategic thinking, but maybe they are better at it than we thought. Well, this is where the pro-leave instincts of Corbyn and his circle dovetail quite smoothly with the anxieties of the great bulk of the Parliamentary Labour Party. Apart from a handful of Labour MPs in London, in places like um, Dulwich and West Norwood, or Hornsey and Wood Green, the overwhelming majority of Labour MPs have a constituency electorate that they believe to be pro-Leave. We can't be precise about this, because the votes were counted in the referendum not by parliamentary constituency. So we don't have entirely accurate tallies. But Chris Hanretti, the uh, political scientist at the University of East Anglia, produced this very detailed breakdown of making estimates of the leave vote by constituency. Every MP will have studied those figures. And they show that in almost all the constituencies that are currently returning a Labour member of parliament, leave voters are in the majority. And that 
scares the bejesus out of the Parliamentary Labour Party. So if we talk about the Tory manifesto now, given that was published since we last spoke, it's a very different document from the Labour one, not least it has no pictures in it. The Labour one has a lot of very boring pictures. It, it, it has a big picture of Theresa May at the start. Oh, yes. And so then it's Not the Labour text. one, I should say, the Tory one. I, I looked through the two manifestos, the Liberal Democrat and the Labour manifestos, the two ones that had pictures, and they have a lot of similar pictures. They both have pictures of wind farms. They both have pictures where women's hands are prominently displayed wearing either a wedding ring or an engagement ring. They both have kids playing football in the Labour one. Jeremy Corbyn is in the picture. They both have a prominent picture of an animal. For the Lib Dems, it's a sheep. For the Labour Party, it's a badger. And most strikingly of all, they both have an image of two police officers from the back with the word police on the back of their tops. Uh, It really is striking. Both manifestos were clearly put together in a rush. There's no doubt about that. The Labour Party manifesto contains the same block of text in two different parts of the manifesto. Someone's done copy and paste rather than cut and paste in putting it together. We've all done that. Um, And so as a result of that, you have a large block of text in the infrastructure section, which is just repeated word for word in the transport section of the document. The Conservative manifesto makes factual mistakes. It gets the year of the Crime and Courts Act wrong. It calls it the Crime and Courts Act of 2014 when it's the 2013. So there's little things like that which clearly haven't been gone through the process of thorough review. And the, the stock photos in the Lib Dem and the Labour manifesto just taken, as it were, from a photo agency and stuck in there show that in some ways. But the Tory one does have, and obviously there's been a whole sequence of events earlier this week about changing one of the key commitments in that. And I don't think we know where that's going or indeed what its long-term significance might be. But the Tory one more than the Labour one does attempt to set out a kind of governing vision, I guess. The early parts of it feel like it's been written by one person, maybe Nick Timothy. We talk about Theresa May's catchphrases, and she has, I think, noticed that Strong and Stable was at risk of being mocked. Not just at risk, it was being mocked. It has a new phrase in there that I was very struck by. One of their key themes is what they call governing from the mainstream, not for the mainstream. And in that section, it's very pragmatic in an earlier age, we'd call it quite third way. It talks about not being ideological, not being pulled to the right. It also uses a phrase that could be pure Tony Blair, which is the basic test for them in government is what works. They use the what works phrase. And yet, she's nothing like Tony Blair, unless I've missed it. Do we have a sense of what this thing is, which is post-ideological and what works, and it's for the mainstream? And and I don't even know what the difference is between the mainstream and the centre, but clearly they are meant to be different in some way. It does overtly distinguish the mainstream from the centre in the document. It does say, rather than this being a centre that's constructed by the phrase the Westminster elites, this is governing from the mainstream. Okay, so the, okay, I didn't pick, so the centre is thought to be a sort of artificial political exactly. construction. And the mainstream is the country at large. That's the, the Westminster versus the country division that's there in the manifesto, which is going back to us where the citizens of nowhere phrase from May's um, 2016. I mean, Blair did use that phrase, we want to be the political wing of the British people as a whole, which was a weird phrase in itself. But this is not that either, right? But I think that what Blair and May have in common is they're building their political offer around an acceptance of structural facts about British politics over which they don't think they have any control. And so what New Labour was about was accepting that Thatcherism had happened and the Labour Party wasn't going systematically to try to reverse elements of what the Conservative governments in the 1980s and 90s had been doing, but would instead try to build something different on the foundations 
that were left to them by Thatcher and Major. And similarly, I'm picking up, I think, on what Helen was saying a moment ago, May is accepting the shift in the tectonic plates of British politics. There was the striking moment where, before the election campaign, she was replying to the Scottish Nationalists and saying, look, I'm the one who accepts the results of both referendums. The, and, and you are you know, refusing you know, both referendums. Exactly, that she accepts the result of the Scottish referendum, she accepts the result of the Brexit referendum, and when people started to observe that the natural result of Brexit would be an increase in the role of the state, in particular the pressures towards new industrial strategy and so on, she's embraced that. And so that, I think, is what Blair and May have in common, that they're accepting the direction of travel of the British state and then dressing it up as a kind of strong leadership that they're providing. You're right, the actual content of the politics, I think, is quite different. So why um, does it feel so different, and stylistically as well as in, in content? I think it's partly because it's, it looks like it's written by different people and there's different voices going on, because some of it is fairly straightforward, conservative stuff. I mean, if you start the economy section, it begins with, we are the party that believes in, you know, like, sound finance. And low um, tax, low taxes, which is not, not a Blairite. Right. Dere- well, deregulation, free markets achieved through free trade. I mean, that's pretty straightforward any conservative government whether they practiced it and whether they that's how they govern in practice of course entirely different matter but in terms of rhetoric and then there's a part about the the contract between the generations and how fundamental this is to the country is a contract between those who are living those who have died and those who are yet to come again you just can't imagine ed miliband's labor party coming out with a manifesto that says something like that i thought one of the most interesting things is though the tension between and I think this is where you can see Nick Timothy's influence. There's a lot about taking power away from London and shifting cultural institutions away from London. And if you look at the part about England in the territorial politics part of it, it's literally non-existent. It's entirely about local government. It kind of muddles the language between devolution about England, which effectively says nothing and says it's all about whether the local authorities who've been given new powers in the last well, since 2000, and whether that can be turned into something more coherent than it that presently is. But then it ends on this sort of peon to the greatest part of our national heritage is our democratic institutions and our legal system, something that's much more kind of embedded in the language of English nationhood, which you can kind of see a way of the country aspect of it would fit with that. But that doesn't really fit with all this Nick Timothy stuff about decentralisation. And I think as well, if we go back to the somewhere anywhere distinction that David Goodhart has used and I think it does make sense in some ways to think of Theresa May as a somewhere politician. The language about global free trade doesn't really fit into that. There's a lot of global Britain in that part of the manifesto and I don't think that the great meritocracy, a phrase that is used in capital letters several times um, over, fits with the politics of somewhere either. Well, I was going to say that part about meritocracy, which is a whole section of the manifesto, the world's greatest meritocracy, it proclaims, a nation founded on merit, which I think is wholly historically implausible as an account of British history, that I think is a direct play to a Blairite language in stressing the meritocracy element within the articulation of a political vision. The world's greatest, I think that part of it, which consistently crops up in the manifesto, you know, it's the world's greatest place to do business, the world's greatest place to to do this or that. I mean, in some places it becomes the world's safest place to go online. The world's, but most um, of these are presented as aspirations. They, and that's exactly yeah. it. It's the aspirational quality. But setting that aspiration in terms of global leadership, which makes it a more distinctively conservative manifesto than the Blairite type of thing that we well, saw Blair in the Blair was keen on global leadership. No, but the way in which it consistently 
positions itself in terms of setting itself up as a global leader in every different sphere, I think is quite distinctively uh, conservative in that Good. respect. And that you don't see it at all in the Labour manifesto. You don't see any don't reference see to that in the Labour manifesto. Because the word that still is often attached to Blair as metropolitan, and, and th- this is not that. I mean, whatever version of pragmatic what works politics it is, not just because it talks about the regions and it doesn't focus it on London. It just somehow, to me, in her style and in the way that she thinks about politics, there is that huge gulf, and it partly comes from that. I mean, his whatever his global vision was, it had that quality that it's coming from not anywhere, but a kind of it floats above the things that Theresa May thinks politics should be grounded in. When I read it, that third way language reminded me of Blair, and I thought, but why is this just nothing like Blair? It's the tension between the, the, the different parts of the language that she's using really just don't fit together. They don't fit together as a kind of political project now and they don't fit together if you try to situate her in the longer context of British political history. She's trying both to be a, a country politician against the court, in some sense to use that 18th century language. She's trying to position Britain in terms of global Britain. She's trying to be a somewhere politician and critique metropolitan anywhere-ness. But there is a real tension between that position and this great meritocracy stuff, and the say which David Goodhart in his book spells out the tension between what well, that would be very clearly. And I think that what it doesn't have is any kind of vision and whatever else you could say about Blair, there was something that kind of held the whole thing together pretty shallowly, I think. But it, it did form some kind of coherent whole, but this just doesn't at all. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quite often when I think about Theresa May, I'm reminded of John Major's conservatives in the 1990s. Uh, the 1990s were when... Theresa May made her start in British politics. She was a candidate, I think, in 1992, and she was elected for the first time in 1997. And a lot of John Major's government was about continuing the Thatcher revolution, looking for new things to privatise, like the trains and so on. But there was this side of Major, which was about a nation at ease with itself, also the authoritarianism of saying that we should understand a little less and condemn a little more. And we should never forget that the the Conservative Party in 1992 got more votes than any other political party in any other general election in British history. More votes than anything except Brexit. Anything except Brexit. And we remember that Major's career ended in disaster with the wipeout in 1997. But Major found a way of keeping the Conservative show on the road and keeping the party popular at a time when a lot of forces were working against it. And I think May taps into that. And what May and Major also have in common is that vague sense of classlessness. Major was the boy from Brixton who'd run away from the circus to join the bank, they said, the only person to do that in history, who rose through the ranks of the Conservative Party very rapidly but wasn't posh in the way that so many of the Thatcher-era Conservatives were. And again... Theresa May, by being the daughter of a vicar who herself is the meritocrat who goes to Oxford to read, to read geography, it doesn't quite fit a lot of 
the expectations people have about who the Conservatives are. And in particular, she doesn't press a lot of the buttons that really annoy people about how Conservatives come across and who they are. So I, I see a lot of parallels between what May is up to and what Major was up to. But Major was blown off course by a small majority and a European headache, and that's exactly what Theresa May is trying to get beyond with this election campaign. We probably spent more time looking at the manifestos than most people, maybe anyone. We know it doesn't make a huge difference to how people vote what's in the manifestos, and we talked about that before. They're, they're about something else. Nonetheless, this has been an election where there's been quite a lot of discussion and does seem to have moved some people's opinions about policy. And obviously, there's a lot of discussion about leadership. So it seems to me that the focus is on the what, that is, what these people say they will do in government. And maybe Labour were winning that part of the campaign, actually, with their cornucopia of delights. And then there's been a long focus on the who, who the leaders are, what they stand for, where they come from. And there is perhaps, unsurprisingly, very little discussion about the how. How would these people do these things in government? And yet, in some ways, the really important aspect of contemporary politics is how hard it is to do, it doesn't matter what you want to do, how hard it is to do anything, and how everyone is looking but failing to find new forms of government or even governance to get things done. And if Trump teaches us anything in this context, it's probably that, which is, it's not who he is or what he wants to do, it's how he's trying to do it that is the, the central issue. And even in these manifestos, and I'm not just talking about constitutional reform, although I think they're both very light on that, but just more broadly, they are both cornucopias of delights. They're just lots of things that they would like to do. So we're going to put out at the weekend a conversation that we just recorded with the Californian tech guru, Tim O'Reilly. It's a very interesting conversation. I think he's an optimist about how technology is going to change, not politics, because he thinks politics is secondary here, but government, new techniques, new ways of testing policies. He says everything that counts as policy now is basically untested assumptions, which is certainly true of these manifestos. In elections, why are people not more concerned? Or maybe they instinctively are, and some of their suspicion of Corbyn comes from this. They instinctively do get that the how matters. So if you take Labour, there's a cornucopia of delights. But the thought of those people trying to implement it in government, that is not a delightful prospect. Are people thinking about that? Where's the how? In the case of Labour, I wonder if that's why the manifesto makes such a play to institutions. There are so many references in the Labour manifesto to how they will set up a new public inquiry, how they will establish a new ministry for something or other, how they will set up a new centre for something or other. So there's that way of deferring the agency onto an established institution. It's not explained how that institution will achieve that outcome. Exactly. But by saying we will create an institution that's in some way separate from us, it's not Corbyn and McDonnell who will do this. It'll be this new centre that will do that. And do you think anyone believes that? I think that's why they've tried to write it in that way. The difference there with the Conservative Manifesto, which is written in a very aspirational tone, which doesn't specify mechanisms often at all to achieve the outcomes it sets up. No, and, it, and the Conservative one does make some assumptions about the, the authority and the, the, the power of the central state, notwithstanding everything it says about the regions against London and so on, there is an underlying assumption that as Conservatives, the way you do this is you just do it by using the authority that comes with having won an election under a first-past-the-post system. Plus, 
you do it under a context in which you're leaving the European Union. They are trying to make something out of the claim that there is now more political agency in Britain to do certain things because Britain's not a member of the European Union. And that comes through quite strongly in the immigration section, for example, in the manifesto. I mean, I think that the issue of who for the electorate offers a proxy for how. Go back to the point that you made. So can you imagine these people taking decisions? I think is quite an important part of determining how people are going to vote and if they look at people and say he couldn't run you know a pint shop then that becomes a big impediment for people voting for him and and do you think it's also and this does relate to Theresa May's u-turn earlier this week so there's also a question about it's always true of government it's maybe particularly true at the moment that you want to do things and you can't the world pushes back against you and then the question is what do you do next do you adapt do you change your mind do you plough on regardless? Do you, if you're Corbyn, maybe sort of become more rigid? I don't know. But there is at least the possibility that there's quite a big difference. And conventionally, the U-turn and Theresa May has certainly made a big problem for herself by twice, first in the budget and then the manifesto, very quickly buckling to what looks like pressure. And I think that is clearly weakness. But relative to that, there's possibly the thought that with the cornucopia of delight, it's not that these people were being capable of taking a decision, but there is a risk that what they would become is very rigid and inflexible. And that kind of manifesto with an inflexible mindset might be very off-putting for some people. It's very easy to imagine how this election in retrospect will look like a good election to have lost. The Brexit process will put the British state, the government, under great pressure with very uncertain and possibly very bad outcomes And if there are bad outcomes, you don't want to be the political party holding the parcel when the music stops, or maybe you do. I can't remember past the parcel, but you know what I mean. We do know what you Um, mean. And that, I think, speaks to this issue of how, that actually we've no idea. So it makes that question of who do you imagine taking the decisions or who do you imagine actually running the government a bit less central, that a lot of what's going to happen over the next few years, is really out of the control of anybody, however competent. So the electorate aren't making a marginal judgment about who they think will be better, given a process over which politicians will exercise a great deal of agency. We're not facing those kinds of politics at all right now. Sure, if it's simply Theresa May versus Jeremy Corbyn, we know that the electorate will go for Theresa May. Every indicator we have says that. But set against what's about to happen and the way that will reshape the terms of political contestation. I think these questions of whether one party can be a bit more competent or one party has a sense of exactly what levers it will pull to try to get things done, I think those considerations fade in importance. So can I finish then by asking you a more pragmatic version of this, which is what then do we think the current Labour leadership's goal is here? I assume we still think, who knows, but we the, the, the gap was closing. It's still very unlikely that at the end of this election it will be Jeremy Corbyn rather than Theresa May who's Prime Minister. So there, there has for a while been a view that, that the Corbyn project is about what comes next and making sure that both institutionally within the Labour Party but also in regard to the ideas that he's been putting forward, he's moved things on to a position that he's more comfortable handing on to his successor and that maybe this manifesto is partly about that, making sure that the, the Corbyn project is not seen to have failed, which is one of the reasons why it's not a very Corbynite manifesto. 
and that relates to Chris's point. I mean, do we think that's what this is? It's a it's a sort of holding operation, but at the same time with a long term view about the Labour Party changing direction substantially as a result of Corbyn's leadership. Is that what this is? I think the Corbyn people are determined above all to hold on to the Labour Party. And so they are more relaxed about electoral defeat than most party leaderships would be, where there's the default assumption that if you're beaten badly in an election that you resign and let the party pick a new leader. It's clear that's not the mindset of the people around the leader. The enormous problem is that Corbyn is old for a British politician, and there is no obvious successor. John McDonnell... It's also quite old. Also quite old. Rebecca Long-Bailey, Clive Lewis. There's no figure around whom the different forces that have supported Corbyn can be expected to coalesce. And that's a real problem for them as they contemplate the next six months to two years. I agree with that, but I also think there's that larger and longer-term project to reshape what the Labour Party is, to give it a purpose in the way that the left of the Labour Party think the Labour Party has not had for a long time. And so in that sense, it's the new generation of people coming into the party by virtue of the affiliation to the Corbyn project at the moment, often you know, younger people, who people who won't be getting involved actively in standing for office for another 10 years or so, who are the centrepiece of the Corbyn project. And for that, at least to work, it does rely upon not failing disastrously in this election. But those people won't be elected to Parliament in anything other than trivial numbers now until 2022. And there's a huge amount of terrain to navigate before you get there. One of the things about a snap election where the Labour Party is likely not to do very well is there are going to be very few openings for new politicians entering the Commons. Some of them will be very promising politicians, like Annalisa Dodds will be elected in Oxford East, probably, but not really any kind of Corbynite. The Corbyn people haven't been dominating the selections in those seats where Labour MPs are standing down and Labour might be expected to win. Mm. Um, and that is a real problem for them. No, clearly, yes. I think that there's a, a or at least I perhaps think, that there's a underlying psychological need for the people who control the Labour Party at the moment. And that isn't necessarily to preserve something of this project for the future. It is to annihilate the Blairite part of the party is to say there is no way back for the Blairites. So even if they have to concede the leadership after this election to someone who is, to use this language, the soft left, that the Blairites will be out of the party and that indeed possibly break away and form a different, at least, faction in the House of Commons. But I think if you listen to some of the people around the, the Corbyn leadership and if you look at the way in which decisions are being made about where Corbyn is spending his time, where Momentum is spending its money and its energy, then some of that is focused on the negative, which is, is let's make sure that the Blairites never get control of this political party again. And to go back to where I started, there's also, I think we would all understand it, a psychological need just to prove people wrong. Mm. And we must at least be facing, I don't know what the probabilities are here, but there's a chance that, that the Labour Party, given the way that the two-party system is reasserting itself, Corbyn will get more votes than Ed Miliband. He may still end up with fewer seats. But to get more votes than Ed Miliband will allow them to say, given what Corbyn has been through in the last two years, and not just the people around him, but his supporters, particularly you know, his supporters on social media, you know, it's a very, very, as you said, febrile atmosphere around politics. The desire to say, 
to your opponents, look who's laughing now, is strong. I mean, I think one thing is is that you can say is that for all the criticism that's come from the, let's call it the Blairite wing of the party or the right of the party, whatever you want to call it, they have never had a convincing argument as to why that part of the party would do any better than the left leading the party. And this election, I think, will demonstrate that in some form or another. So the interview that we recorded with Tim O'Reilly we'll put out at the weekend. If you subscribe to this podcast, you'll get it automatically. Otherwise, you can find it on iTunes. It's an interesting listen. It's a good companion to the interview we started this whole series with, with Yuval Harari, who was very doomy and gloomy about the new technology. And Tim O'Reilly is not. We'll be back next week. I'm sure that the election will have resumed, not as it was before, because it won't be as it was before, but campaigning will be back in full swing by then. Next week, we'll get together some of our regular contributors who aren't British to look at this from a wider context and see what this election means in the broad scheme of things. Do join us again for that. Until then, my name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.